Let's go to the Lord in prayer once again. Dear God in heaven, this morning as we come to this time in your word, we call out to you and we ask of you that you would bless us and enrich us in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, in the truth of your word. Thank you that it is your word that is living and powerful. Thank you that it is your word that's a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that it is your word that comes to the lost soul. And by the work of your Holy Spirit, with your word, you birth that person into your kingdom. And thank you that it is with your word that you continue to nourish them until they stand in your presence. And they are blameless, not because of themselves, but because of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Bless us this morning as we spend this time in your word. I pray that you would remove from our minds distractions and thoughts, anything that would interfere with receiving your truth. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles, if you have not already, to the book of Jude. We're going to move right down into the 24th verse. Jude 24. Do what? Oh. Jude 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. We spent some time last week looking at the latter part of verse 25. And whenever you examine those statements in the latter part of 25, you should conclude what has already been stated at the beginning of the verse, that there is but one eternal God. Let's spend a moment this morning looking at those statements again and then address the beginning part of this verse. We acknowledge that whenever glory is ascribed to God, that nothing is added to Him. The Bible says in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 6, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God never changes. God does not lack anything. We cannot add to His essence. That means we cannot add to His being. We cannot make God feel better. We cannot make God sad. We cannot make God happy. In and of Himself, He is God, and He absolutely has no dependence upon His creation. But at the same time, do not conclude that he is impersonal toward his creation. He is not aloof to the things that he has made by any stretch of the imagination. He is God. He is beyond our comprehension. And it is our duty, it is our responsibility, and as a believer it is our privilege to be able to ascribe to God 
glory and honor and praise. What a blessing that is. And that's what Jude is doing as he is concluding this letter. And in this doxology, he is demonstrating further God's ability to make you able to stand in his presence, as is stated in verse 24. And not just stand in his presence, but to stand in his presence with great joy blameless before him. Because if you are not going to stand before God blameless, you will not stand before him with great joy. And so Jude does exactly what you would expect here. He ascribes glory to God. We addressed the fact last week that glory speaks of all the aspects of the nature of God. And there are many of them. It speaks, as Exodus 33 brings out, of His goodness. It speaks of His name, His graciousness, and His compassion. It speaks of His absolute independence. His glory is who He is. He is glorious. And no one can see Him in His glory and live. His glory is incomprehensible. His majesty. Whenever you come to this word majesty, it speaks of God's greatness. It speaks of His prominence. It speaks of His splendor. It speaks of the importance of God above all of creation. Look in your Bible to Psalm chapter 8, verse 1. Psalm 8, verse 1. O Lord, our God, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We have dis you have, who have displayed your splendor above the heavens. God is majestic in all that He is. Same chapter, look to verse 9. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. As a matter of fact, ascribing majesty to God is acknowledging God for who He is. The word majesty is actually a synonym for God. Look in Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1, and move in the text with me to verse 3. And He is the radiance of the glory, of His glory, and the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purifications of sin, purification of sin, He sat down at the right hand, and notice this, of the majesty of, on high. God is great and glorious. He is majestic. You can see it again in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 1. Now the main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty 
in the heavens. Jude speaks of ascribing dominion to God, and dominion speaks to God's overwhelming might and power. His authority is an aspect of his nature. It is God's ability and his right to rule over all creation. The Bible tells us in Psalm 115, verse 3 and 135, 6, that God is in the heavens and He does what He pleases. He's not subject to anything or to anyone. He is great, glorious, majestic. He's independent. Praise the Lord. We know from other verses of Scripture, in the light of all of this, we know that God is good. He is good. Could you imagine if He were not? The answer to that question is no. No. He is good. Good and good. Praise the Lord. God's glory, His majesty, His dominion, is not something that is temporal, it is eternal. Notice as Jude says here, before all time, it is something that God possessed in and of Himself before creation ever came into existence. In time, notice the text, and now it is something that God is. And as Jude goes on, it is forever. It is something that He will always be. He, therefore, transcends the creation in His glory, His majesty, His dominion, and His authority. Praise the Lord. What a great blessing that that is. Now I want you to look back at this text, and in particular there, to verse 24. Verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless with great joy. To the only, look at this, God our Savior. To the only God our Savior. This Greek word that's translated only here is the word monos. It appears a little over 40 different times in the New Testament. Whenever this word does appear, it's used to express the uniqueness, the isolation, or exclusivity of persons, things, or actions. Whenever it is used to speak with regard to God, it demonstrates the singularity and exclusivity of the uniqueness of God Himself. He is the only God. And you can put a period there. There are no exceptions. The Bible is explicitly clear with regard to that 
truth. As a matter of fact, this truth of the uniqueness of God's being and the fact that He alone is God is fundamental to knowing God and having the revelation of an understanding of Him. The singularity of God is one of the things that absolutely separates Him from all the gods that are falsely made up by mankind. Look with me at a few of these verses. John chapter 5 and verse 44 that proclaim this truth. John 5, 44. Using the same word describing God, monos. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Chapter 17, verse 3. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is a prayer of Christ to the Father. Move from this text to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. 1 Timothy chapter 1, 17. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Notice again, the only God. Chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, verse 15. Which He will bring about at the proper time, He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. God is the only God. He is the only sovereign. Look at verse 16. Who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Obviously, another doxology, another time in Scripture that God has ascribed to Him or acknowledged by His people His majesty and His glory. Look with me from here to the book of Revelation chapter 15 and down in the text to verse 4. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. God alone. Holy. In the absolute sense. Praise the Lord. This is no New Testament revelation. The reality of this truth, of the singularity of God, that there is but one, was revealed in the Old Testament. It is a truth that God 
has made explicitly clear. I'm going to take you this morning through several verses, as we already have, but in the Old Testament, doing the same thing. And one of the reasons for this is because this awareness of the aspect of the nature of God, that there is but one, again, is fundamental to the Christian belief. If you get this wrong, there is no salvation. There is no other Savior. Because inevitably, in getting this wrong, the nature of God has changed. And that, my friend, is the worship of an idol. Pure and simple. It's no small mistake. No small sin. God unequivocally in the Old Testament, declares that He alone is God and that there is no other. You know, it's an amazing statement. If God were to say, I alone am God, you could put a period there. That would be enough. Because that would mean exactly what it says, that He is God and there is no other. But he adds to that. Not only does he say he alone is God, then he, if you don't get that, he communicates the reality that there is no other. There is no other. Start with me in the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one. Look in your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 19, verse 15. 2 Kings 19, 15. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned above the cherubim. You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. You know, I was, remember one time several years ago witnessing to an individual on this very subject that there is but one God. And his response was, well, there is but one God. And then he said, for this earth. thought, you don't get it, do you? You obviously don't read the Bible. God says, as he does here and other places, that he alone is God. Period. Period. Move from this text to Nehemiah chapter 6, or chapter 9, verse 6. Nehemiah 9, 6. You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, 
the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Psalm 86, verse 10. Psalm 86, verse 10. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. You alone are God. In the book of Isaiah, Isaiah takes this truth of the individuality of God, the singularity of His nature. The fact that He alone is God, He makes it expressly clear all through the book. Start with me in Isaiah chapter 37. Isaiah 37 and move to verse 16. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God, You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Chapter 43, verse 10. Many of you should have these verses underlined in your Bibles. We have addressed them before. Isaiah 43 and verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Verse 13, even from eternity I am He, there is none who can deliver out of my hand, I act, and who can reverse it. Move from here to verse chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and the Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Move to verse 8, the end of the text. Is there any God besides me, or is there any other rock? I know of none. That's a powerful statement. Because if there was a God besides God, he's saying here, I don't know him. And what would that tell you about God? If there's another equivalent to himself and he's not aware of him, then he would not be God. Move from here to chapter Let's go to chapter 45 and 2 verse 5. 
I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you though you have not known me. Verse 6, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Verse 18, I am the Lord in the middle of the text or the last phrase of the text and there is none else. You can see it again in 21. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord, and there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior? There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Do you get that there? He says, turn to God because there's no other Savior. So any other God besides the one true God would be a false God, and that God can not save. Cannot save. So again, we are reiterating, and actually it is God who states it, that if you come short of this doctrine of the singularity of the nature of God, you are, my friend, without a Savior. It doesn't matter how religious a person is or how right they may be in a multitude of other areas. If they do not come knowing that there is but one God, they do not know him. And to not know God according to Jesus, as we read early in chapter 17 of John, is not to have eternal life. It is a very simple and profound truth. And we could go on this morning. We could look at 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, Ephesians 4, 6, and again to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5. All of those texts stressing the fact that there is but one God. And someone would ask, well, you've stressed this morning and clearly have demonstrated in Scripture that God in His Word proclaims there is but one God. How then do you describe the Trinity? How then do you get around these truths where the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, and yet at the same time, they are all three distinct individual persons. Well, let me start by saying this. We don't get around that at all. Christians don't look to get around it. We just take God at His Word and say what He says. That's the simple answer to it. The very first thing that I would acknowledge about God is the fact that He must, in the absolute sense, be incomprehensible from my perspective because I'm a created being. I can no more understand the absolute essence of God than a bicycle could understand my absolute essence. 
impossible. It's created or made by humanity, and it's senseless whenever it comes to trying to understand humanity. The Bible is clear, though. It is explicitly clear. There is only one God. We have read a multitude of verses in both the Old and the New Testaments this morning. And at the same time that it declares there is only one God, we have the Father recorded in the New Testament referring to Jesus Christ, calling the Son God. Look at Hebrews with me, chapter 1 again. Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews 1, move down to 6. Hebrews 1, 6. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, this is the Father speaking here, and let all the angels of God worship him. This is the Father talking about the Son. And he says of the Son, let all the angels of God, that's a reference to the Father, worship him. So, an incredible statement. God said in the Old Testament in Exodus 20, verse 5, that you are to worship God only. Jesus repeated that very statement in Matthew chapter 4, verse 10. And here we see the Father saying to the angels, Worship the Son. But if from that we don't get or understand the fact that here the Father is calling the Son God, look with me to the 8th verse. But of the Son He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So here we have the Father, God, calling the Son, God. How about the Son calling the Father, God? Look at John chapter 6 with me. John 6, move down in the text to verse 27. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him the Father God has set His seal. Clearly the Son referring to the Father as God. You can see the same thing again in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Here again, Christ is referring to the Father as God. You've already heard it this morning stressed and stated by Christ whenever he was praying to the Father in John 17.3. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, 
and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So there's the Father calling the Son God, the Son calling the Father God. What about the Holy Spirit? Does the Bible refer to the Holy Spirit as God? Well, the Apostle Peter explicitly did that whenever he encountered a situation in the book of Acts, the fifth chapter, and I'll ask you to go there with me. The setting, as you are aware, is the sins of Ananias and his wife Sapphira. They had sold some of their land for money, and after getting that money, they gave a portion of the money to the church. Nothing wrong with that, whether they gave a portion of it or all of it. God blessed them to do either. But in giving a portion of it, what they did was they said, we gave it all. Now that's a problem. Because whenever you lie, inevitably we're lying to God. Take a look at the text. Verse 3, notice Peter's words. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Notice, he very explicitly said, you've lied to the Holy Spirit. While it remained and sold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have received or conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter saw God. He saw the Holy Spirit here. One in the same. One in the same. The Bible tells us other places that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And at the same time that it is given by inspiration of God and declares that to us, it tells us that the men of God who penned those words did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, referring to the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. So how do we reconcile this? We have this word called the Trinity. And this word Trinity is used to describe this biblical reality. Many will say, well, that word Trinity wasn't derived until so many years after the Bible had been written. And that's true. But the Word doesn't invent God. The Word is simply a description of what is clearly in biblical text. And the description is this, that there is but one God, and at the same time there is one God, the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. There are three distinct persons in the Godhead. That's what the Trinity is. It's a recognition of these biblical truths. One God, three persons, all distinct from one another. 
Now, over time, individuals have taught, thought to be crafty, and actually their craftiness was from no one but Satan himself, and they come up with all kinds of, of systems of theology to describe this. One of those systems is modalism. Now, what modalism simply means is that it's also referred to as Sanbaalism, and it simply means that there's one God, and that sounds good so far, and that one God at various points in time manifests himself sometimes as the Father, sometimes as the Son, sometimes as the Holy Spirit. That's not true. That's not biblical. There is one God, three distinct real persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. We know they are three distinct because in Matthew chapter 3, we see them clearly conveyed as distinct from one another. We see the Son being baptized. We see there the Holy Spirit descending on him in the form of a dove. And then at the same time, we hear a voice out of heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Three distinct persons, all God. Not God's, one God. Not God's, but one God. Beloved, God in his word does not speak duplicitously. He does not deceive, he does not lie, according to Numbers chapter 23, verse 19. When he says there is only one God, then there is only one God. And since there's only one God, he's exclusive, and there exists no other gods. No other gods. All other so-called gods are false gods. They are and they can be nothing more than the vain imaginations of sinful men or the idols of demons or both. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, that the things the Gentiles sacrifice to idols, they sacrifice to demons. They are not gods. They are false gods. There is only one true God. Now, if there's only one true God, and I love this, then the reality exists that we're accountable to only one true God. You know, whenever you start multiplying gods, you minimize your accountability. The Romans did that. That's why Paul, whenever he was at Athens, he walked through the place and he saw all of these multitudes of idols. And he ran upon an idol there that was not just a unique idol, but it was itself proliferated throughout the place. The idol, as he described it, inscribed on the idol, the idol to the unknown God. And what did they mean by that? They meant that there may be some gods out there that we haven't yet discovered. And so just in case we've missed one, we've got that covered. We got a multitude of idols 
to the unknown God. And inevitably, all of these idols were crafted to allow for, in essence, their sinful behavior in one way or another. But there is only one God, and we are accountable to him. Listen to what God said to Israel. You can find this text in Exodus 34, verse 12 through 17. Keep in mind, he's leading the people of Israel out of Egypt, a place of polytheistic beliefs, and he's leading them into the land of Canaan, another place of polytheistic beliefs. And he says, watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods, and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite you to eat his sacrifice, and you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons to play the harlot with their gods, you shall make for yourself no molten images." You know, in Exodus 20, verse 5, the same thing was stated in the commandments. You shall not make unto yourself any graven image. You are to worship the Lord your God and serve only Him. Why? Because there is no other. There is no other. We are not left to make up gods. God clearly defines Himself in Scripture. Anyone that comes up with a distortion of who God is, is against God. Pure and simple. He describes himself and his nature and his concern for the uniqueness of his existence as being jealous. Deuteronomy chapter 4, 24, verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. He has described himself in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 9, as jealous. Deuteronomy 6, 15, and 32, 21. Joshua in Joshua 24, 19 says, He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. In Ezekiel 39, 25, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I shall restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I shall be jealous for my holy name. He is a jealous and avenging God, as the Lord Nahum says in verse 2 of chapter 1. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries. He reserves wrath for His enemies. We're accountable to that one God. One of the attacks of Satan, perhaps the preeminent attack of Satan, whether he assaults head-on or subtly, 
is always to get you to think differently about God than what Scripture describes God as. You can only think about God rightly when you think about God as He has described Himself in His Word. You don't dare, we don't dare think of God any other way than outside of His description of Himself. There is a way that seems right to us. Well, God ought to be like this, or God ought to have done this, or God this, or God that. But the end of the way thereof is death. It's death. It is very interesting that John in his first epistle, 1 John, starts the chapter out by saying in verse 1, 1 John 4, 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but try the spirits and see whether or not they are of God. We're to test them. We're not to believe everything everyone says. It is to be put to the test. As a matter of fact, in those next verses, the Bible tells us there that one of the characteristics of being a Christian is that you believe that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. And if someone doesn't confess that, then they're not believing the truth. But whenever you move down to the last verse of 1 John, the last verse of that fourth chapter, remember verse 1? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but try the spirits and see whether or not they are of God. When you move to verse 21, he makes an incredible statement. One that you would be surprised at. He says, keep yourselves from idols. Keep yourselves from idols. Wow, that's an astounding statement. How is it and why is it you would have to warn Christians especially to keep themselves from idols? Well, the answer is simple. As he said there in 1 John and elsewhere, there are deceiving spirits that have gone out. And those deceiving spirits, one of the primary things they want to do is distort the nature of the being of God. Because once God's nature is distorted, in the mind of the believer, there is now no good path. No good path. God is jealous for His name. He is one. There is no other. As a matter of fact, John says there that Jesus has come in the flesh. What is he talking about? Remember John, he was the one who penned John chapter 1, the gospel. In verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in verse 14, the Word became flesh. You see, Jesus Christ is God. He is God. You know, it's an amazing thing today. How many people will attest to the idea that they believe in Jesus? 
but then they have no understanding of His nature. There's something wrong with that, beloved. There's something wrong with that. Whenever we come back to our text in closing this morning, whenever you have an understanding that God alone is God, then you begin to understand and comprehend that only God then is able to keep you from stumbling. That only God is able to make the believer stand in the presence of His glory unblemished. That only God is to be worshipped. That only God is to have glory and majesty and dominion ascribed to Him. That there is only one Savior, the Lord God Jesus Christ. He says this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 42, verse 8. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. What a blessing to know the one true God. To know that we, by virtue of His work, on our behalf, in the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord God and Savior. He will make us stand blameless in His presence for eternity. That He will keep us while we await that moment from stumbling. We must keep our eye on Him. And there's only one way to do that, beloved. There's only one way. You don't look at the experience. We live in an experiential-oriented world today. It's amazing to me, even as I look at some of the things that are going on in evangelicalism today, the, the biblical unawareness that exists there. that sin's deceiving, that sin can make you believe something is true when it is not. And it can also make a person believe something that is true is not. The only lamp that we have to our feet with regard to the things of God, with regard to the things of eternity, is this book in front of us. His Word. The 66 books in this Bible. It is through these that the one true God has spoken and speaks today. There are many people running around right now in evangelicalism. I heard some this weekend saying, God has spoken to me. God speaks to me. He sent a prophet to tell me. It's not true. One God, one word from God to one people, His people. Let's stand this morning.
You know, Jude concluded that chapter, that epistle, with a declaration of the exclusivity of God. Perhaps because those who have crept in and were changing the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ into a license for immorality, and those who were denying Jesus Christ perhaps were communicating a different God. And I would submit to you that they were. Because the grace of Jesus Christ does not give a license to licentiousness. It does not condone sin. God's love didn't come to minimize sin. It came to destroy it. And in order for sin to be condemned, Christ had to die in the flesh. So don't think that sin is going to be minimized. Because for God to minimize sin, He would be minimizing the death of His Son, in whom He Himself said He was well pleased. We need to confess our sin and forsake it. Some were talking about some revivals going on recently. And immediately I couldn't help but think of some things that I had read in history. One of them in particular, during the days of Spurgeon, during his time of preaching. They talked about a revival going forth there. And the interesting thing about that revival was the ladies of the night stopped their working. That the bars up and down the streets closed up business. There was a real effect. Not just, I feel good. Not just, I feel like God's at work here. You don't need to say you feel like God's at work when the world can look and see God's at work. They saw it in the book of Acts, didn't they? They saw the people gathering together all their witchcraft books and taking them out in the middle of the square and casting them into a burning fire. It so rattled the lost world that they were viciously mad. The coppersmiths met together and they said, look, these guys are destroying the world. They're, they're speaking disparagingly of our goddess Diana. What will become of her? Well, if she's a god, nothing. But they knew she wasn't. And they knew that the one true God was there. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, we ascribe to you glory and majesty, dominion and authority. 
We know that it is true. We cannot deny it. Cause such a reality and truth to be not merely on our lips, but in our lives. And thank you that we may be able to, by virtue of not our own ability, but yours, stand before you blameless. In Jesus' name, amen.